Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And last week, in week one, we spoke about trials, that a Christian can rely on God and rejoice in who God is in the midst of their troubles. And that's so countercultural. The world says you have troubles, God must hate you. You have troubles, you must give up. Things that are slow and hard aren't worth doing. And the gospel says the opposite that God is with you, that God is teaching you in your troubles and trials, that God is producing steadfast faith, that God never changes so we can rely on him. But this begs the question, in your trial, what about the temptation part? What about if I don't trust God and I fall into sin, how's all that work with a big sovereign God? How's all this fit together? How does temptation even work and how's it different from sin? And James starts off in verse 13, he says, don't blame God for your temptation in a trial. Look with me at verse 13. This is a key idea. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And it sounds weird to blame God, but it kind of happens all the time. It sounds like this. I don't know, man. I mean, God's sovereign. If I'm still struggling with this sin and I can't kick it, maybe God just wants me to struggle. Or it could sound like, well, God brought this thing into my life that led to this temptation, so I guess it's God's fault. That's what Adam did, blaming God for Eve. That's what we do all the time, blaming God for our temptation, our struggles. And James tells us clearly just to stop that, that it's ridiculous to blame God because first, God is good, and he can't be tempted by evil. There's no appeal to it. We are evil. We are tempted by evil. We are broken. We are tempted by these things, and God is just simply not tempted by it. So when we question God's goodness, it doesn't come from God's failures, but our failures of perception. We start not seeing God correctly. We choose to believe the lie that God is not good, and we go astray. And the second reason James tells us that God can't be blamed for our temptation because God tempts no one. And the rest of this passage is going to prove that we don't need any help to tempt ourselves. We don't need an assist from God to drum up temptation in our life. Instead, there's plenty going on inside us to go ahead and bait the hook and make a mess of our life. And God would never do such a thing because God has no part in evil. He abhors evil. And instead of blaming God, this text leads us to conclude we should desperately cry out to God saying this world and our life is so tempting. I need you, God. Blaming you is the opposite of that. And so as he sets the table to say we can't blame God, James is arguing this big theology of the Bible, that God is big, that God is sovereign or in control of all things, and that makes God trustworthy, and it makes God good because we we owe all of our existence to God. Our very life and breath and moving and having our being is all owed to God. We can't self-create. Our parents can't self-create. All the way back, if you go far enough, you just get God. And so everything is under his good control in life, and that makes God trustworthy. However, humans aren't so trustworthy. You know you're not so trustworthy. That you're not always good. You know it from experience of your life. However, humans, as big as God is, we still have freedom. We have the freedom of choice. 
or what philosophers would call a reasonable determinism. And that's a fancy word that says, no, you can't just fly around like Superman. You can't just do any old thing, but you do have a choice in your life that your decisions matter, that we're responsible for our choices. Even though God is big and sovereign and in control, you're still responsible for you. What you do and say, if you obey or disobey, it all still matters. And some of y'all are hearing this and are like, finally, Justin is finally talking about the stuff I care about. Others of y'all have already glazed over. And I want to tell you this, that it's okay to dive into big, thick theology things. It's okay to hang deep. This ain't deeper than watching six hours of Loki or something like that. And it matters because it hangs together like this. We, want, we don't want to obsess over it, but we do want to acknowledge there's some big things at work in just one verse of this scripture. And we should take away from it that God is bigger and better than we know. And we do make decisions. And we can trust God through these things. And I want to teach on this temptation in a classic way. In verses 14 and 15, there's a classic way of teaching it that has four Ds. There's deception, desire, disobedience, and death. And I call it temptation's trap. And it's a method of teaching this passage that's endured through the ages of Christianity. Why? Because it's biblical. It pops right out of the text. Two, because it's memorable. There's four Ds in a row. And last, because it's really helpful to look at our own life, not just academically, but experientially, your experience, and say, hey, when I feel tempted, where am I in this? What's the stage of this temptation moving to sin? And how can the scriptures teach me to turn away from these things? See, all sin starts with deception. Just like in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, the serpent shows up. And what does he say? He says, this, did God really say don't eat of this tree? And that question was to put just a little bit of doubt if God was really good and if God was really trustworthy. And Adam and Eve take the bait and immediately start to unravel. Stop trusting God. It leads to death to all people. But in the same way, we get deceived so easily. Look at some of the common deceptions right here. Something bad happened to me. So God's not really good. I didn't get what I wanted, so God's holding out on me. You ever struggle with this one? I know I do. God's words can't be entirely true all the time because my situation is different. I'm sad, so God doesn't really love me, and surely he doesn't care. And those seem and sound too simple to deceive us. You'd be like, oh, they look silly, like written up there. How often do you find yourself believing one through four when you're down and out and you say, well, things just didn't go like I wanted, so I'm just kind of mad and that's just what it is. And that's how quickly deception works. It doesn't even have to be a good lie, but it appeals to us deep down to say, maybe I should take some of my chips out of trusting God and start putting them on other things, including myself. And slowly but surely, we kind of take a little money out of that pile of trusting God and start hedging our bets for other things, chiefly being ourselves. 
And that's why James simply tells us the first step to avoiding temptation, to limiting sin in our life, to turning away is verse 16. Just do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Do not be deceived. Don't let less than truth into your life. Don't let the things that are not of God suddenly slip in and take precedent or take place of the truths that God has told you. Don't doubt God in the dark of what he told you in the light is another way to think. When things get tough, don't let these lies start to slip in when things don't go your way because it's easy to do. And when broken pe- we're broken people prone to deception, we aren't like God who's never tempted by evil. But when deception enters the, pe- the picture, suddenly evil desire has an opportunity to lead us, has an opportunity to take the steering wheel. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, the word desire isn't always negative in the New Testament. There's several positive places, but here it is negative. It's speaking of evil or twisted desires in us. And evil desires for things or experiences that are expressly forbidden by God's law. Something like a jealous desire that leads to stealing, a lustful desire that leads to adultery, a prideful or insecure desire to be in control, to be powerful, to be over others, or something along those lines. But there's also things that are called twisted desires, things that were good desires, but sin has kind of distorted them, so they come out as, well, evil desires anyway. Perhaps a person desires intimacy and closeness in a relationship. Therefore, they're willing to compromise their sexual morals to build that intimacy and closeness. Or maybe shortcut it and go to pornography as an easy substitute. It could be a good desire of wanting rest and to ease anxiety, but turns into a twisted and evil desire to abuse drugs or alcohol or Netflix binge or overeat. A desire for a meaningful and engaging life can get twisted easily into Amazon shopping sprees, risky gambling, and day trading. See, even sometimes some things that have a good desire get twisted by sin and end up as an evil desire anyways. And that's why desire is a tricky thing. Even as God can create new and holy desires in you, we must be careful and think about what God is doing in our hearts. And the reason this matters, it's because our own desire lures and entices us. It's our own desire. We usually think of it as some outside forces doing this work, but this text tells us it's our own desire that's literally, this is a fishing metaphor, we're baiting our own hook. We're using real things in the world like day trading on Robin Hood for a little excitement, a little risk, but we are using that to bait our own hook We know and want certain things and we start to lure and be enticed by our own desires. And James is making the same point that Jesus does about desire and where evil truly comes from. Look at Matthew 15 with me. It's one of the most illuminating passages. Jesus says, do you not see whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of the heart comes murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And these are what defile a person. 
See, Jesus was answering accusations about, hey, your, your disciples, they don't wash their hands before they eat. And that was a Pharisee rule. And Jesus takes this opportunity to teach on sin. See, we put a big focus on the world and how it tempts us. And we either end up blaming God for our temptations or blaming the world for our temptations. And God's saying the primary tempter, the primary problem is right here. That these things are primarily here. The other stuff matters too, but primarily the truth is, is we're in control of one single person, us. And we are enough to lead ourselves into sin. Now, should we be wise in what we consume, what we watch, what we listen to, how we engage, the kind of jobs we do, all that? Absolutely. We use wisdom. We avoid tempting situations, discernment. That all matters. But the war is not correcting the heathen somewhere else, but a war for your heart to desire Jesus above all things. I'm very skeptical of those who love to complain about the world being worldly but seem silent about their own need for God's grace and mercy in their life. We should be Christians that know the world's going to world, but mainly focus on our great need for more of Jesus and how that changes us. Jesus and James are teaching us the main issue for us is us as uncomfortable and as unsettling as that is. And I think that's why we have a strange relationship with horror movies. Anyone like horror movies, like to get a little scared? Six of you. I, I see you. See, horror movies have the same themes over and over. There's something wrong with the house. There's something wrong with the parent or usually like step-parent or like evil step-parent or something wrong with the kid or something wrong with the dog or the pet cemetery. There's something unknown or evil out there. And, and it's a riddle to figure out how is this going to resolve, right? But the most enduring horror stories of our time, at least in this Western canon, are Jekyll and Hyde and their variations. Frankenstein, Dracula, zombie stories, The Shining. Because these horrors point in the direction of Scripture, of the direction of Scripture, that perhaps the horror is me, or perhaps I may become the horror if I don't watch out. And this pushes us to the very heart of this passage in the gospel, that we are the horror. And Jesus is the great solution that he became a horror for us to cure what's already inside you and I. Deception makes space for that evil desire to rise up. And look at verse 15, describing what disobedience is. Then desire, when it has conceived, he's switching from fishing language to pregnancy language, Desire, when it's conceived, it's taken the hook and the bait, gives birth to sin. Christian, when you feel tempted, I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to see, I feel tempted. I feel an opportunity for sin and desire rising. That should be an alarm bell. Guilt is for sin, but temptation 
you are called to then flee. As you feel that temptation rising, it's time to run. It's not time to ask 50 questions. It's not time to hang around. It's time in the Old and New Testament, the instructions and the examples of these biblical heroes, they just get out of Dodge and they'll figure out the rest later. It's time to click off. It's time to leave that office room. It's time to go with a friend. It's time to go on a run. It's time to do something to get out of things because temptation should send this alarm bell because temptation is not sin. If you're willfully putting yourself in temptations, tempting situations, that is sin. But it is going to happen to every Christian that there will be temptations in your life. And the call when it rises is to be a warning bell to just start running. And you can think more about it later. What sin is, is when that temptation rises and that evil desire is acted upon and it's a disobedience, a sin before God. Every sin we learn in the Bible is ultimately not just against ourselves and our fellow man and woman, but against God himself. And that's where the serious seriousness of sin, whether it has big consequences in life or little consequences in life, our sin is ultimately before a holy, pure God that loves us. And that's why we must run from our sin. See, unrepented sin doesn't stay put. Look how verse 15 finishes this metaphor, switching from fishing to pregnancy. It says, then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. See, unrepented sin creates and grows in us like a baby in a womb. We think no one can tell that we're struggling with this unrepented sin. And the truth is, everyone can see it as the months go on. And when the sin baby grows up, it brings forth the last D, death. One of the most dangerous things we can believe is that we have our sin under control. That's how a sin baby is allowed to grow and grow. And the lies sound like this. It's not a big deal. No one will find out. I can stop. I have this under control. Or even some perverse version of, well, God forgives me, and using that as a permission to keep sinning instead of an invitation to stop sinning. And while we're busy managing our sin, our sin grows and grows, and one day it grows up and murders us. And citizens, I want to warn you as a fellow tempted human, do not manage your sin because it will murder you. You will not be the exception. It will unravel your life. Both spiritually, if you don't turn to the Lord Jesus in unbelief to belief, but in a Christian's life, many of these big sins have big consequences and they will unravel your life. And you can stop the process of this growth of sin in your life by simple confession, repentance, and bringing others in not to judge you, but to help you. That's one of the deceptive lies, that if people really knew, they would judge me and isolate me. And you know what I've watched happen for 15 plus years here? People confess their sin, they repent to God, they seek out appropriate help and trusted brothers and sisters, and they get better. And people have mercy. And maybe people go, me too. And they figure out a way to fight this together instead of let themselves be slaughtered by their sin one day. 
sin's goal is to isolate you from God and his word, then isolate you from every godly person around you. If you feel like in life you're starting to lose your godly friendships like flies, you don't have time for them, nothing seems to work out, you are probably harboring a sin baby that's keeping you from seeing your deep need for God and others. That's the scheme if you wonder how a Christian gets slaughtered, how, how, oh my gosh, I can't believe how that happened. Well, this is how it happens. It's a simple and seductive plan to isolate you from God and others. Sin makes us insane. It makes us unreasonable. It makes God feel far away and push others away. And it aims to isolate you so much that repentance just feels impossible. And so you just start defending it. When it goes that far, suddenly you jump on sin's side and start fighting for your sin instead of fighting against sin for the glory of God in your life. And the desire and maybe the opportunity for the big sin, Christian, that could and unchecked will ruin your life, it's most likely already in your life. That's not to scare you or a scare tactic, but you probably already know what would really unravel your life. You've probably already had this desire cross your mind. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the opportunity's already there. But what I'm saying is that you can resist this thing. That temptation could be a person, it could be money, it could be a work thing, it could be a lie, it could be a secret, it could be a goal that's out of control. This passage is saying unrepented sin will grow and grow and grow, but confession and repentance will stop it in its tracks. This is not a hopeless situation. Instead, it's one full of hope that there is a real way out. Evaluating my life over the past couple weeks, I see one of the big temptations in my life is my frustration with my children. It results in anger. It results in harshness. It results in resentment towards them and God. It results in entitlement. It results in impatience in my life. I've checked the fruits of the Spirit. That's not them. Those five did not make the list. And while I can blame it on stage of parenting or blame it on the demands on my life, it's really my issues of control and feeling powerless to make them behave that drive it deeper and deeper into my soul where I have to talk about it, confess it, repent it, find more and more help from the Lord and others and continue to try to be faithful in a difficult time for my family. My deception sounds like this. God, I deserve easy, obedient children, so this is basically your fault. Sounds pretty silly to say out loud, doesn't it? That's why I put some silly sounding things on the board, but I think we believe them all the time. Church, be honest with yourself. What's the sin in your life, temptation in your life, desire unchecked in your life that could unravel you, that could pull you away from Jesus and have huge consequences for both yourself and those around you? Church, let's not play with sin, but rather learn to escape the trap by trusting our greater God. Look at verses 16 through 18. James, don't leave us hanging here. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we should be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. God advises throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments, to flee temptation and repent of sin. And in that spirit, James wants to give you four truths to hang on to. When you're in this process, maybe you're just feeling deceived. Maybe you're feeling some desires that you're like, these are more evil than anything else. Maybe you've already committed disobedience. This is the time to look at these sorts of things and say, okay, God's word, help me find a different way to live. First, we escape by refusing to be deceived, trusting that God is true and God's word is truth. That's the first step to limit the amount of deception we're in. Second is that we trust God as the father of lights, giving the greatest gift in the gospel. See, the father of lights is a phrase to refer to the God who made the sun and the moon and the stars and everything we see. So James is telling us, don't be deceived, but let God be as big and as good as he is. Sort of like last week, let God be big, let your temptation be appropriate. If the temptation feels too big, you're probably going to lose. But if you let God be God, the God of the Bible, then you have more than a chance. So delight in God who made it all and gave us every good gift. Here's how you practice that, church. When you drive home to work or go on a walk or look out your window or you're at home, your heart is meant to be overwhelmed with every good thing God has given you. Every tree, every blade of grass, every member of your family, every place that you live, everything that you eat, your heart is meant to explode in thankfulness at the Father of lights. And these twin ideas, look, James is such a good writer. He says, don't be deceived and don't let your desires run wild. Instead, replace it with the truth of God who never lies and thankfulness, a heart that is not easily led into sin, is full of God's truth. It says to store God's truth in your heart, full of his truth and full of thankfulness. That is not fertile soil for sin. Sin does not grow easily in a person who's absolutely overwhelmed in thankfulness for every good gift in their life and is absolutely trusting in God's word. And chief among these good gifts, to be very clear, is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus came and lived a perfect life that we couldn't and died a death for sin that we should have. Jesus rose from the dead to forgive all of our sins and grant us a new life with him where we can continually repent and enjoy God, not just in the future, but right now, no matter your troubles. And it leads to the third truth that God is constant with no shadow or variation due to change. I change all the time. I change my opinions, I misspeak, I do dumb things. God's never done any of that. God is as real and is offering forgiveness the same as the day he rose from the dead or the day you accepted Jesus. Right now, he's constant. Every sin we commit is a new act of rebellion towards God. And we have a God who's constantly asking rebels to come home. You can find strength in God's consistency and constancy, just like we sang about. In a world where you're always changing, like wind across the fabric of a sail, he's constant like a mast that can never move. It leads to this fourth truth that God makes us new, these first fruits, from the inside out by his word of truth. 
James's word for the gospel is just word of truth. What a wonderful, wonderful way to describe the gospel of Christ. See, God is recreating the whole world one day. That's the end work of the gospel, but he's starting in your heart. The renovation isn't, oh, maybe one day I'll be saved. He saved you then. He's saving you now. He will save you completely one day. You are the first fruits of all of his creation being remade. And that should encourage us that every time we repent of sin, we should start to feel the grace of God and his forgiveness is, hey, God's not giving up on you. He led you to repent. He gave you grace, not begrudgingly, but with joy. Why? Because he's creating a new you from the inside out is fruit ripening in summer, that one day it is gonna be complete. The struggle with sin is exhausting right now, but one day that'll cease too. There's a hopefulness in this truth that what I'm living now isn't the only life I'm ever gonna live, but instead it's the start of a whole new life with God forevermore. When we press into God with desperation, We grow hot in our steadfast faith for the gospel. And when you're hot for the gospel, when it warms your soul to know of Jesus's great love for you, it's the ultimate solution to temptation and sin. Because when you're hot for the gospel of Christ, suddenly temptation and sin seems as stale and as cold as it is. It can never deliver on what it's promising. It can't. It may seem like a good deal. It may seem like a pleasure you must have. It may seem like approval or power or comfort or control just lives right here if I only did this. But it's always stale and cold and crumbling apart in the end. There's a warmth of the gospel fire that is the ultimate move towards Jesus and away from sin. Because the truth is, church, you're gonna do what you desire most. When you're like, why did I do that? I can't believe it. You always do what you desire most. And when you surprise yourself with a poor choice or surprise yourself with sin or it becomes at you like a blind side, it's time to reevaluate, what do I desire? And on the other side of that, you find a merciful God saying, come on home. I want to rewire that part of your brain and your heart too. I want to make you new from the inside out. The three big encouragements I have are this. We just talked an awful lot about sin, the gospel, and temptation. But there are three monster passages in the New Testament that I want to encourage you right where you are about what is true about you right now. And the first is this. Church, there is nothing you are struggling with that Jesus cannot understand. Nothing. Hebrews 4 says this. For we do not have a high priest, I put Jesus in caps there, just so we keep it clear. Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, Jesus, who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. The devil wants you to think this is too disgusting, too dark, too, too, you're too weak, and don't come to God with these things. And God is explicitly saying it's the opposite. Come to me. 
I already understand it. I already know it. I knew it in the future. Still died for you. God did not die for some future better version of you. He died for you. So you can draw near with confidence, confidence to the throne, knowing mercy and grace await you on the other side. Number two is this. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13 tells us that there's nothing currently tempting you that you cannot escape from. Look what it says. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed and lest he fall, be humble. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is nothing you're caught up in right now that you cannot start repenting of, walking away from, and finding grace in Jesus. One, he knows everything we're struggling with. Two, he says, we can get out of this mess. Man, those are two things that bank all of your life and repentance on. Now, well, a trial might beat us down. God does give us more than we can handle because he wants us to depend on him. But when it comes to the temptation side, there is a way to walk in wherever you are in obedience towards Jesus and away from sin right now. We have a very high standard of uh, morality in Christianity. Such a high standard of morality because we want to reflect God's holiness. But we also need to have a huge Christian gospel or our morality will crush us. And the huge Christian gospel is this, that God already knows it and died for it. And then God wants to help you get out of it. Not just theoretically, but experientially in your life, proved over and over and over. Read an Old Testament story where sin and temptation occur, and you will find this played out in the story. Take Daniel, take Joseph, pick a story over and over and over. God will not have his people be tempted beyond what they can endure if they depend on God. And the third is this one. If you feel like right now, this is all just a little too much to hear because deep down you know you are stuck in some sin that you ain't told no one about and it's making a mess. There's a pig in the sty of your heart kicking mud and whatever else all around and all this is deeply overwhelming to you. I want you to hear directly from Jesus's own words that if you're stuck in big sin, that's what Jesus is for. Mark 2 says this, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call those who think, not call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. Church, if you feel like you're an absolute mess, Jesus is your Messiah today, now. Not next week, not when you figure it out. He wants you to run to him now. And you're like, what's that look like? It means throw yourself at the mercy of God with abandon. In prayer, in your life, tell somebody, tell God first and say, God, I just need your mercy. I don't need to figure the whole way out. I just need mercy now. God is came for the sick. He came for the sinning. He came for the broken. And if you're sitting here today thinking, I don't really have sin and brokenness and struggles in your life, 
that this sermon must be about other people or new people, then I must inform you. You are the most broken person of all in the room. The most broken person in the room is never the person who sinned the most. It's the person who believes they need God the least. That is the great deception that you don't really need God or Jesus. It's the most deceived and dark place you could be is to not need a gracious savior who upholds the universe by the work of his hands. Jesus is for you, whether you're filled with self-righteousness or filled with brokenness, which is its own brokenness. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.